the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to On the Record with Tiffany. There are heroes throughout San Antonio, men and women that go the extra mile to make lives better. During the next hour, you'll be inspired as we introduce you to these unsung heroes. And now here's your host, Tiffany Jones-Smith. And we're back with On the Record with Tiffany and Kevin, and we have a special guest, Mr. Anthony Collier. Hi, Anthony. Hi, good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm great. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I was excited to see you. Okay, so a little bit of background about Anthony. He was general counsel to Senator John Whitmire, who serves as the chair of the Criminal Justice Committee here uh, in Texas. And I just want to know, like, how did you... One, how did you feel uh, this last session? And tell us a little bit about your background and how that influenced uh, your experience with the Senate. Sure, so this, my first legislative session was in 2017. I did the Texas Legislative Internship Program, which was started by Mickey Leland, the late Mickey Leland and Rodney Ellis. So I was still an undergrad at the time. I was a junior Mm -hmm. at university. Then I graduated from TSU in 2018, and in my gap year, I served as a legislative director in the House to the current chair of the Texas Legislative Black Caucus, a state rep out of Missouri City. And then in 2021, I was in law school at the University of Texas, and I did the legislative lawyering clinic, um, which allowed me to to get class credit to work um, at the Capitol during the session. So this was my fourth session serving as general counsel to to Senator Whitmire. But the way I, I ended up working for him, I never applied for it. I never asked for it. I didn't even think that it was an option for me. But um, I had a couple of job offers. I had just graduated from law school. I wasn't sure which job to take. And one of the jobs, they were like, we need an answer today. Like they tried to hire me on the spot. And I was like, um, give me a, give me like two or three days to pray on it to really mm-hmm. seek the Proverbs 3 and 6 says, acknowledge him in all your ways and he'll direct your path. That's the New King James Version. The New Living Translation Version says, seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. And so I did. I sought the Lord. I prayed. I asked him, God, which job should I take? I look up, and I have a missed call from Senator Whitmire. <laughs> I call him back, and I say, hey, uh, Dean, sorry, I missed your call. And he's like, oh, I didn't mean to call you. It must have been a pocket dial. But while I have you on the phone, let's talk. And during that conversation, he offered me the job and convinced me to take it. So that's how I ended up serving. Divine him. appointment. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. But, uh, yep. That's exactly, oh my gosh. The, okay. Okay. So you went from a predominant, from, from a, a black college, which, tell me what was the difference between being at uh, a black university and then going to to uh, law school. It was fascinating because historically speaking, TSU is the black UT. TSU mm-hmm. created because they didn't want to allow black people to go to UT's law school. So that's the, mm-hmm. the reason TSU's law school is named after Thurgood Marshall is because he sued the te- state of Texas, Sweat B. Painter, on behalf of Heman Sweat. So they, the University of Texas School of Law accepted Heman Sweat into their law school. But when he showed up, they were like, oh, you're black. Like, I guess they saw his credentials and read his application and didn't realize that That he was black. That he was black. (laughs) They were like, we didn't know a black person could be this smart. And so they were like, oh, we changed our mind. Like, you can't come to this school, uh, you know, but we'll create a separate but equal institution of higher learning. And so there was the Houston Junior College for Negroes. They established a law school there and built the university around it. And that was the the, uh, birth of Texas Southern University. And so... 
for me to go from Texas Southern University to the school that created to keep us out of UT and then go to UT and be elected student body president at UT Law School, I think it's just a full circle moment and just uh, um, poetic justice and also just like God's hand at work, which which I appreciate. So yeah, it was very different because in my class, man, at TSU, almost everybody is black. It's, it's a beautiful, like, it's almost like being baptized in black culture. Um, but at UT, in my class, there was a, uh, it's three, you know, they have three classes, right? One of those, two of us, and three of us. And my class is the class of 2022. It was 280 students. There were only, um, what, 12 black people, 10 black women, two black men in the entire class of 280. That's that's less than 4%. And when we talk about men, it's even worse, right? Two out of yeah. 20. So uh, at some moments, it could feel a little isolating, but it, and you can feel like, you know, you're, you're carrying the weight of the black world on your shoulders, like trying mm-hmm. to uh, be a good example because you don't want to mess it up and then they don't let the next brother in. Right. So uh, I tried to do good. I, you know, I wasn't perfect, but um, I did succeed there. Um, like you I said, great. President, <laughs> student, and I worked with the dean at the time to establish a pipeline program of HBCU students to help get more black students into the law school. That is excellent. You did great. And you managed to, you know, we were having this discussion uh, when we saw the, you know, the Supreme Court ruling come down, but and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the discussion that I have all the time with um, my relatives and with friends and with other professionals is uh, what would it have been like? Because I went, we went to, I went to Baylor undergraduate. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I dealt with personally uh, in, in that setting was, you know, you're in, a, you're in college for the first time. But uh, on top of that is, the, is all of the racial, uh, the racialization of, the, of, of that environment. So you're dealing with people trying to treat you like you're not smart enough to be there. Like you got there, it, it wasn't your merit that got you there. You just got there because of affirmative action or you just, or they just gave you a spot. You didn't earn your spot and, and you earned it as much as anybody else. But you're dealing with that, uh, with the attitude about uh, your capability. And it always seemed like if, you know, I thought, man, if I would have gone to an HBCU, I might have been happier at that particular time uh, because I don't care what, you can go to the best schools in, in the country. They can't teach you to love yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and that's something that, that uh, everybody that I have met over the years from HBCUs they have a beautiful sense of pride and uh, a sense of self at 22 that I did not have at 22. Yeah, but Tiffany, along with that line, right? So uh, something that, that, that we, we talk about this a lot, uh, Anthony, about that sense of, uh, I remember this line where uh, a friend of mine who he, he went to Howard and he would say, he'd always tell me, cause I didn't know anything about historically black college when I was, when I was your age, didn't know, I knew what I knew right at the time. Right. And so, but a good friend of mine would always say, Hey, <laughs> they can't teach you to love yourself like we do. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, and, uh, and quality and of education, true. but the quality of education that he received, right just as good as mine. He went on to do, uh, to do law school, uh, be mm-hmm. extremely successful, extremely driven. Right. And so, uh, and so that was to me, just one of the most amazing things. I don't know if you're first generation, I didn't look, uh, first generation student, uh, uh, college student or not, but like for me, I was first generation. Right. So, uh, on my branch of the, uh, of the genealogy tree, I was the first person to graduate high school, first person to go to college. Right. And so we were excited. But there was that sense of racialization. Right. Uh, where people were saying, I, we don't know if you got here on your own merit. And what I thought was interesting about that whole dynamic was that the reason affirmative action was in place was because it's not because we needed help. 
we didn't trust the system to be <laughs> fair. <laughs> we did not trust the system to be fair. Right. And so as we go through this, right, uh, that and, and it's just two different views uh, of the system. Right. Whereas to, uh, white people saw will see the system as being fair and uh, black people, American descendants of the formerly slave. The system is not going to be fair. And the story you told on the history of TSU, that proves that that the system is real. It has not been. There has not been a time when it has been. But the system is being rigged. So talk about uh, your your feelings around that or was that because to me it was never I was never thinking about it every day. Right. But, but when you talked about you feel like you carry the weight uh, of all black people on your shoulder. Right. And I don't know if that if we should necessarily do that, but I still feel like that a lot of times when we're in different spaces, I feel like we have the weight of black people on our shoulders and we have to represent and, and those type of things. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So sometimes pressure can can bust pipes and sometimes it can make diamonds. And I think that coming in with that with that sense of uh, responsibility and urgency is a large part of the reason why I did so well in law school and why I didn't allow others to define success for me. But for me, uh, success was you know finding my purpose, what it is God put me on the earth for, and to go do that. And it wasn't to be a Supreme Court clerk, right? It was to go into criminal justice reform and, and, and work on behalf of our people. But um, as far as, and congratulations to you on being a, a first generation college graduate. That's incredible. You definitely um, paving the way for future generations. And uh, same here, I'm a first generation college student. And also, and I also didn't know about HBCUs coming up. And that's something that uh, we, we have to do a better job of educating our kids on that yeah in the history of it. The reason why I ended up going to HBCU, I wasn't even going to go to college at first. Um, I was at a, a barbershop, right? Just hanging out um, time as a teenager. Was, <laughs> I was selling, I think I, I was actually selling mixtapes at the time. Look at I, you, man. Hustling. I love it. <laughs> and so, and this, this guy walked in, he had on full black traditional West African attire with the hat to match. And he walked up to me and he, and he tried to I tried to sell him a mixtape and he said, You're gonna regret everything that you're selling in these mixtapes. You were called the lead. God has a calling on your life and you're wasting and misusing your influence. And I was just like, Man, whatever, you're not trying to buy a mixtape. Like you need to get on my face. <laughs> <laughs> he told me, read the autobiography of Malcolm X and it'll change your life. And he just walked out. And everybody in the barbershop was like, yo, what what just happened? Like, we have never seen this guy before. He got on his African clothes. We have never seen nothing like that, right? We just in the country, mm -hmm. like, I'm in Mainer, uh, Mainer, Texas. And so it was like, we've never seen nothing like that. And um, But it re but God knows how to get your attention, right? That really resonated with me. And I just couldn't forget about it. So I went to the library uh, and got the autobiography of Malcolm X, and it did change my life. And it sent me on this knowledge pursuit. It got me to read about Marcus Garvey. It got me to read about the Black Panther Party. It got me to read about the uh, Asada Shakur. And then it led me to the Miseducation of the Negro by Washington. Dr. Yep. And that book is what inspired me to go to an HBCU. And so if it, if it had not been for that encounter, right, I wouldn't have, I might not have gone to college at all, at all let alone went to an HBCU. Yeah. And so talk about that. Right. So one of the things that uh, that that has changed my life. Right. And I always say that people have to uh, is that we have to feel connected to the country. Right. And so uh, just that whole history. Right. So I, I, I've, I probably have read uh, uh, X's book autobiography once every year. I read it once every year. Right. And it always keeps me inspired. He always has these nice little at the end of each chapter. There's a nice little uh, little uh, summation of it. Right. And one of the things that uh, one of the sections, I forget which chapter where he talks about being the first and only, you know, black person. Right. And how some people wear that with a sense of pride. Uh, but for us. Right. The one thing that we always say when we're the first to come through the door, what we want to make sure is that others can also come through the door and also that we represent our people. And what we mean by that is that when a conversation that's going to impact our people is going on, we want to make sure that we vigilantly, vigilantly. Uh, advocate for our people on behalf of our people, because we know that if we represent black people, everybody else is going to get the benefit from that. Right. We see that from the 13th, 14th amendments. Right. It wasn't black people who used the 14th amendment uh, first. It was Asians 
who used it, right? That's kind of poetic given the uh, the recent uh, ruling, right? Uh, and so uh, what is that like when you're in the circles that you're in to make sure that you're advocating uh, for black people in a way that you, in a way that's uh, that's very, in a way to make sure that we're heard and our side of the story is heard? Yeah, what you said is so true. And about like some black people being like, Oh, like bragging. I'm the only one on my job. I'm the only one. <laughs> this is like, really? This is what you got to say? You need yeah, to get, out, get up out of my face right now. <laughs> but but it, it ties perfectly back into the Supreme Court decision, decision because Uncle uh, Clarence, <laughs> <laughs> he benefited from affirmative action. And then okay. he, so he, you, he climbed up that ladder and then he turned around and pulled the ladder up to make sure nobody could. <laughs> To call, that's just one of the most disgusting and despicable. Things. I don't want to just put it on him, right? Well, um, because the, every, everybody who voted in favor of it is wrong. He's wrong too, mm-hmm. wrong as well. Because white people have had affirmative action for the past four hundred years, like you said earlier. Like uh, affirmative action was to right or wrong because we were qualified. We just were not getting that opportunity and they were getting in oftentimes over more qualified black people because of systemic racism yeah. so so they the fact that they would turn around and say you know and 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 remove that remedy is egregious and and going back to what you said about other everybody every other race benefiting from the work we put in it's true uh a rising uh, lifts our votes and also when you, anytime you lift the foundation of a being the entire thing rises right and black people are the backbone and the foundation of this nation we built this nation and and another example of that that's very egregious is in right here in texas with hub so hub stands for historically underutilized businesses and this is legislation that senator west there's only two black senators in texas right there's mm-hmm. senator from houston who is currently boris miles and the senator from dallas which is currently West and uh, in the, like the 80s, Royce West spearheaded legislation because, uh, you know, the state gives out contracts to um, to businesses and they were systemically refusing contracts to black businesses. So he passed legislation that said the state, the state of Texas automatically has to give a certain amount of their contracts to historically underutilized businesses. Right. But of course, that doesn't just include black people. That includes veterans. That includes yeah. age. That includes Hispanics. That includes white women. And when I tell white women are getting uh, over 90% of all hub utilization that was put in place because of uh, black people were getting discriminated against. And oftentimes it's the wealthy white man putting the business in their wives' name and getting and just getting more of the money that we fought for. We're getting like less than a crumb and we're the one who put the sweat equity in. We're the ones who put the blood, sweat and tears in to get the legislation passed. And it's just uh, that's just kind of a microcosm of what's been going on historically in this nation from the Civil Rights Act to the Voting Rights Act to the Fair Housing Act to the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment. All right. I like that. Let's leave it right there, Tiffany. And we will be back with On the Record with Kevin and Tiffany. And we have the immaculate, the awesome Anthony Collier here on 930 AM. The Answer, home of conservative talk radio. Check us out at On the Record with Tiffany on YouTube. And all you have to do is look up On the Record with Tiffany and you will get to listen to us talk about freedom opportunity, growth, and progress. If you like what we're talking about, or if you don't, check us out on YouTube, on the record with Tiffany, and listen to what we have to say, because we can guarantee you we're going to spark some debate at your house, just like at ours. We are doing a special campaign at Texas Kidney Foundation to get your kidneys checked. It is called Silent But Deadly, because kidney disease is a silent but deadly killer. And we need you to go to our website, silentbutdeadly.org, take a 12-question test, and we will send you a kit to your house. Get your kidneys checked at silentbutdeadly.org. And we're back with On the Record with Kevin and Tiffany uh, here on 930 AM, The Answer, home of conservative talk radio, uh, with Anthony Collier being our special guest. All right, Tiffany, what do we have here? Tell our audience what your next job is. Um, So I'll be the director of criminal justice for the National Urban League. I'll be moving to New York City to work on national policy. 
Wow. And what does that entail, my friend? That's that's broad. And he's Some, thirty years old. Yeah, you, you, he, he, yeah, he, he, he is a he, he is a young man. He he has, he has that baby face. Keep that baby face. It's gonna come in handy for you. <laughs> <laughs> so explain about what that means when you when when uh, on the policy side there. What, why is that? You're going from a conservative state, and from being in this position that you've been in here now to essentially the other side where you're going to actually get to, to uh, do some justice reform. So how did you, you know, how did you handle the desire to do exactly what you're about to go and do with working in the setting that you're in? Sure. So the, the job entails handling the criminal justice reform portfolio for the, for the national urban league and all of our affiliates nationwide. So we'll be working to get laws passed, ordinances passed, and also to address like um, police shootings or mm-hmm. that are plaguing the black community. And and a part of the reason why I believe I was hired is because I came from such a conservative state. And so like getting criminal justice reform in Texas is like running with ankle weights on because it's, it's so hard to get it done here that if you can get it done here, the rest of the nation's takes notice. Like for example, that first step act that uh, pre- that Donald Trump uh, signed in the law during his first term, mm-hmm. uh, that was criminal justice reform we passed in Texas. And they said, oh, if they can get that done in Texas, we could probably get this done nationwide. And they were correct. And so- mm-hmm. what well, Why is the- that bill important? Well, describe that bill so that people know the details of that and describe why it's, why it's important. So the second look at is dealing with uh, sentencing reform. So uh, for because of um, systemic racism, there was a time where uh, if you had, you know, crack or if you had um, cocaine, you it, it would be 50, you would get 50 times more of a penalty for um, selling crack or for having possession crack than you would for co- cocaine, even though they're essentially the same drug. One is just a cheaper version. So it's more accessible to poor people. Um, and so with the Second Look Act, they will go back on like uh, nonviolent drug offenses. That was kind of the catalyst for it, but it, it doesn't just apply to crack. It's going to apply to marijuana. Yeah. So let go- me describe that a little bit. I don't mean to cut you off so that so that people here on the radio station uh, won't won't miss this point. We're talking three ounces because I, I, I was I, I was of the age as a young man. I could have been wrapped up in some situations that I shouldn't have been in. We're talking three ounces of crack cocaine, which is essentially three sweet and lows. Versus you could have a whole brick of cocaine and that's a two and that's a whole kilo of, of, of drugs. Right. So for a kilo, you got less time for a kilo than you did for three ounces of cocaine. That's what we're talking about of crack. I'm sorry. Three ounces of crack, crack cocaine. Right. So and I had friends who got caught up in that and got years for that. Whereas I knew of a couple of uh, non-melanated people who uh, had kilos and got less time. That's why that's important because the distribution isn't fair. It, it is not a fair thing. And so the, that's an, that's a huge accomplishment uh, uh, on that path. So anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, uh, Anthony. Oh yeah, no problem. And, um, but more recently in the past legislative session, uh, when I was in law school, I was working for Senator Boris Miles and he's on the criminal justice committee. And that's kind of how I foster the relationship with Senator Whitmire. But we got a ban on chokeholds passed and duty to intervene legislation passed. And this was during the 2021 legislative session. And those were two of the priorities of the Urban League to get that type of legislation passed nationwide. And so I think they took note of that. And and they said, wow, if you were able to, you know, because I helped write that legislation, of course, working under the leadership and the tutelage of Senator Boris Miles and help, uh, you know, get that passed across the finish line. And so they they look at it as if you can get these type of historic uh, legislation passed in Texas, we believe that uh, together we can get a lot of good work done nationwide. Yeah. I adore Senator Miles. I think the hand of God is on Senator Miles uh, because he has done some great things for uh, kidney patients. In my other day, in my day job, I, I'm the president and CEO of the Texas Kidney Foundation. And so uh, Senator Miles has just been been uh, the first place that we have seen kidney legislation go through. And it, and it was the same thing. Like once people saw us move legislation in Texas for kidney patients, then when we went federally to, to, uh, 
to do the immunosuppressant uh, act, then we were able to pass the immunos immunosuppressant bill in the 116th uh, um, Congress in 2020, after we had tried to push that through year after year after year after year, but it was once once they started seeing seeing uh, the needle moving in Texas, then people were like, "Oh, well, we probably can do that now." Mm -hmm. Let me let me, ask, let me let me ask this question, right? Because this is one of my uh, pet peeves, right? I always say you can uh, you can complain, bellyache as much as you want, right? But until you get on get there and make it a policy. All it is is just political intrigue, right? We can get on, we we can get, we can go anywhere, say whatever, right? We just, we just, it's just air. It is just air until you actually get in a, get, get in the halls where policies are made, right? You're just talking until you can refer to, you know, bill, blah, 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 with those numbers behind it, right? Or it's in the Senate, it's in the House. Until you can talk about that, right, and move in that direction, everything else is just words and talk. Well, until so it makes it to the government. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got to get... Or just makes it to his desk and is accepted. But you, that's the... If you haven't but that's the part that... That's changed. the part that we... And, I, and one of the things, Anthony, I don't know your p political affiliation. I just know that when I saw your action, I was like, this guy... This young man, and I don't mean to say that in an offensive way, but this young man is moving in the right direction because in order for us to see change for our people, it's got to be in the policies, right? And that's the yeah. one thing that I, I found very fascinating about your whole thing is that it's policy. And I, I found fascinating that he's on, that, that he's on, that he's worked with the conservatives and he's, and he's, working with uh the the left and the right we work with the left yeah. and the right because there has to be representation in both of in, in on both the left and the right in order for us to actually see the change we want to see yeah we always refer to that anthony as our politics we always say our politics is b1 what's your party b1 Right. We just in Texas, we just happen to be the Republican Party. But at the end of the day, our politics is black first and issues that impact black people, because we know that if we change those right for black people, for our people, that, you know, it's going to change it for everyone. But talk about the importance of policy and why it's, at the end of the day, it's policy that matters. Sure. So I believe and this is something that uh, that I subscribe to since uh, my political awakening, which was like I said, as a teenager, reading Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey. I believe that black as black people, we have no permanent allies, only permanent interests. So I'm a <laughs> political party affiliation organization that's going to help make uh, lives better, improve the quality of life for black people. And so uh, in Texas, of course, since, you know, they the Republican Party controls the House, the Senate, mm -hmm. the governor's mansion and the lieutenant governor's office. For, to get any legislation passed in Texas, you have to be able to work across the aisle. And I thank God that he's blessed me with favor, not only with Democrats, but also with Republicans and with Libertarians. And uh, a, I want to shout out Representative Matt Krause. He was a, a Republican in the House. He recently he ran for uh, attorney general, but yeah. uh, he was unsuccessful. But he was one. He was a uh, I believe he's a libertarian. But yeah, he, he is. Uh, one of our strongest and best allies in the House on criminal justice reform as a Republican, as a white, as a white uh, Christian conservative. And so well, anybody as long as they're on the right side of the issues when it comes to our people. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, yes. And that is the exact right attitude to have, because if we uh, we should always be looking for allies. If somebody thinks that you will align with them no matter what, and they can, they can um, treat you any kind of way, you will always be a 3 a.m. booty call, which is what we are in many cases, because they know that uh, we're going to vote with them, or no matter what, no matter how you talk to us, we're going to stick with you. No, uh-uh, no, no. If my neighborhood's still deteriorating. <laughs> my school, or, uh, my school is not getting what it should be getting. 
Yeah. And so that's why I, I just love that last statement. Right. Uh, uh, on, uh, I'm just thinking of the chapter that on, on the X book, right, is where we have to be uh, focused on the causes that impact our people. And for and we see that in criminal justice, it's mm-hmm. health for us and it's economics and it's schooling for us. Those are the really the four issues more important. And from our view, and you can order them different ways. Right. And we work with all people on that is that we have to be willing to, to move according to the issue. Right. And we can't simply gerrymander ourselves into with one group of people. Right. And uh, one of the things that uh, that we run into often is that people will say, well, you know, overall, the Republican Party is full of a bunch of racists and they have racist views. And to that, I have to say, that's correct. You're right. That's true. But it, I still have to go in and I still have to encounter and, and interact with the party. And I'm, and there are things about the party that I like. And here in Texas, and like you said, if you want anything passed or moved, you've got to be involved with the party. You've got to go in and you've got to be involved at the policy level and not the political intrigue level there. So I always say people should vote in the primary, especially here in the state of Texas. There's only three million uh, black people uh, here. And for us, the the potency of our vote is always going to be in the primaries. Right. That's where I believe that we should always turn out the vote is in the primaries. But uh, well, I um, agree with you on the. On the go ahead. Um, we do disagree. And you're allowed to. Mrs. I, what I think is, is that there are a vocal group of race mm-hmm. that people actually hear more of. But I don't think that most people are racist. I think that'd be accurate. Yeah, I think most people are living their lives and working and doing the same things that we're all doing. You know, they don't, they're not trying to be, they're not willfully trying to do anything to anybody else, but you've got a, a vocal minority that is uh, really trying to take hold. And yeah. we either, we either lay down and let that happen or we stand up for what's right. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I think this is why we need more people uh, like Anthony and like ourselves involved in the process. You cannot right? come and, jumping up into a party and all you're trying to do is uh, self-promote and make, you know, be the be the one and only. So, Anthony, I'm going to jump back over to X because we're quoting, you, you're quoting two of my, one of my favorite books. Uh, and then with Marcus <laughs> Garvey, I'm sorry. you We went here, right? I didn't you're try like, this what? Right. Is this our... <laughs> Our uh, child, did somebody steal this boy away from us? <laughs> so when you read X's book, because I think I read X's book like in high school. Uh, no, it was college, my first year of college, right? So when you go through and you read that book, what sense, uh, because it's completely different than what they tell you about. They tell you that, oh, it's about hate. It's about that. It's really not. It's about self-discovery. It's really, it's how did X become who he was at the time? It's a book of self-discovery. So when you read that book and you're walking in and you're in the and you're in the halls of power and policy, how what is the impact? What does that leave you with? What what part of that do you kind of bring to the table? Yeah, I think that Malcolm X taught me a lot of things. One of the um, one of the most critical things I learned from Malcolm X is and it's, and it's in line with the Bible as well. The Bible says train up a child in the way they should go. And when he's old, they won't depart. And if you remember as a child, Malcolm X's father would take him to those Marcus Garvey meetings, those Garvey mm-hmm. meetings. That was an avid Garveyite. And though Malcolm X did get older and stray and lose his way, when he was reintroduced to that knowledge of self in prison, he was more open and susceptible to it because he had already that seed had already been planted inside of him. And so it just goes it goes to show the importance of uh, educating our youth and teaching them knowledge of self at a young age so that when they're older and they're reintroduced, they'll be more likely to, to grasp to it. It also... Uh, I saw myself in him a lot, too, because, you know, him spending eight years in prison. My dad has been incarcerated. My stepdad, my dad and my stepdad were both incarcerated when I was in high school. And I and I got sent to alternative school twice. I was heading down that same path. All mm-hmm. my, my dad's side have been incarcerated. Most of my cousins, my family is actually from Houston. My Part of the reason why my mom moved me to Maynard, where I grew up out in the country, is to hopefully, you know, 
remove me from that so I can have a chance, a chance that my dad and my uh, and my my uncles and my cousins didn't have. And the fact that this brother, you know, went to prison, spent eight years in prison and with knowledge and with reading books and with self-discipline was able to turn his life around and come out and become one of the greatest leaders and orators the world has ever known. And without uh, a college degree, be able to debate and defeat, you know, professors at Harvard and, and Columbia and UC Berkeley. It's just a reminder too of how, how powerful our people are and, uh, and, and, how it's important for us to tap into that that uh, that unmet potential, and and how some of the most brilliant brothers and sisters that we have are locked up in prison, which is also why I'm a huge advocate of getting AC units in these prisons. Like people are are baking to death when it's 105 degrees out here, it's like 120, 130 in these prisons because they're made out of metal and they're made out of stone, and it's like a lot of the times people they dehumanize them and they say, oh, they shouldn't have made a mistake. But those are, that's somebody's father, that's somebody's daughter. That, that There's a Malcolm X in that prison. You know, there's, there are, these people still have value even though they made a mistake. And some of them, let's be honest, some of them are probably innocent as well. And so uh, we have to get more humane conditions in the prison. So yeah, it just taught me about the importance of knowledge yourself, about uh, training up our children at a young age, teaching them knowledge yourself, and to have humanity. And uh, and about redemption, how people should be able to have another chance. If you make a mistake, you should be able to to get another chance. Your your worst moments don't define you. Anthony, you're 30 years old, right? And so you're born in the 90s, right? Future so, of America. So awesome uh, session last. I think the part that people people miss the historical context, and I think that's something that you have at 30, is the historical context that that uh, black people are in, that the American descendants of the formerly enslaved are in. And you have that sense of connection. And I always think I always say that X book is is the gateway uh, to that. Right. Because it causes you to look around. And he does. And uh, Alex Lee does a wonderful job with that. So you talk about talk about what's the importance. So you went to a historically black university. Right. Uh, you, you, you have a background similar to mine. Right. Not quite. I, uh, I, fortunately, I, I had a stepfather who helped me make a little bit more some better decisions along the way than your than your father. But I could easily have gone down that path. I mean, I was planning and scheming down that path. And uh, but uh, it's probably the right word. <laughs> but right. <laughs> But now that historical context, right, because people forget that they forget why there's a thing like affirmative action. They forget why it's important for black kids, for black people to feel that connection that that has been stripped away from us in many cases. Right. By the by by uh, basically uh, telling the, the story of America and the mythology of America without us and the importance of our contribution. So as a 30 something born in the 90s, what's the importance of that connection uh, with America and the connection with the history of the real history of our people in America and overcoming those things? Yeah, I believe it was Marcus Garvey who said a people without knowledge of history is like a tree without roots. And so if you don't have if a tree doesn't have roots, it can't survive. It doesn't it can't get the nutrients. It can't get the water that it needs to grow and to prosper. And so I believe that's the same for us. We have to understand the context of, of, of why we're where we're at. Like Michael Maxwell asked, who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips and the color of your skin? Like um, when when um, Thurgood Marshall was suing for Brown v. Board, and I got mixed feelings about that, uh, mm-hmm. but... But I, but what I can't deny is the brilliance of his advocacy and like and his uh his skill as a as an attorney. They did the 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 black dog test, and they had the black girl and you know they had the white dog and the black dog and they said which dog is the good dog? She pointed at the white one. Which dog is the bad dog? She pointed at the black one. Which one is the pretty one? She pointed at the white one. Which one is the ugly one? She pointed at the black one. Then I asked her which one do you look like. And she just sat there with a confused and then and a painful look on her face, but she didn't point at one of the dogs. And the fact that this toddler has already ingrained that type of white supremacy and self-hate at such a young age goes to show you that we have to be proactive about about educating ourselves about the uh, importance of our history which is not the does not start uh, with slavery but is as you know being the original wo- woman and man of civilization uh that's something to be proud of yeah we had a minor setback for the last 400 years but in the grand scheme of things uh in the history of time 400 years is a blink but also we have to understand that uh, the condition the condition that we're in can't be fixed overnight either because we're talking about 400 years of slavery and then another about uh, 50 to 100 years of, of, of terrorism and, and Jim of Crow. apartheid. It's it's, another, it's like it's 100 years of apartheid is what it is. Absolutely. Right? 
And so if we look at uh, when the Fair Housing Act passed in 1968, we're really looking at 1968 to now. So that's like uh, 55 that's like, years or so. Yeah, it compared to, to 450 to 500 years of, uh, of slavery and terrorism and oppression, like how I don't understand how people can think it's just going to be, you know, equal uh, after that week. It's like Michael Mech said, um, if you stab a person in the back and then uh, pull the knife out, you know, that's not necessarily progress. You got to you have to heal the wound. You got to make that person whole. You have to address it. It's not enough to just say, oh, we're not stabbing you in the back anymore. And so now it's all good. Yeah, let, let, I want to just camp out on that one because we, we have a conservative radio uh, uh, audience here. And and let's just think about that. So I was born in 1971 uh, in the latter part of 71. Tiffany's born in the early part of 71. Right. So we were on the tail end of the legalized enforcement of apartheid in America. Let's be clear about it. that's what it was. Now, people use the word Jim Crow. People use all other kind of uh, 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 euphemisms to mute it, to mute the impact of it. But it was uh, from 1865 up until about uh, 1968 is when laws took place. Right. Is that it was legalized, legally enforced apartheid. People say uh, white supremacy. Right. That is the term. But let's, let's look at what it was. It was apartheid. It was separate. And unequal is what it was, right? So in the last 55 to 60 years, we have not lived under that. But think of all of the potential that was lost from 1865 up until the time. Because from 1865 up until about 1877, 78, when you took away the chains, and even under terroristic acts during that time, black people were making unbelievable strives, mm-hmm. right? And no, we don't even have to leave the continent of America to see the impact that when you leave people alone, the impact of what, of what they can do, what a free people can do. Right. And black people were making strides. They were making unbelievable strides. Right. So strides. So one of the things people will focus on is uh, the 1921 Tulsa uh, 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 burning. Right. But people forget about the 1919 red summer in which they killed American soldiers in their uniforms. Right. And then and I always say, what type of normalcy was it where you could go in and you could level a whole city and no one even blink an eye? It was normal because of what previously happened before as people were reinforcing. There were there were there were numerous examples of Tulsa years prior to that. Right. There are many others. There are many others where that happened and people fail to realize that. So contextually. Right. In the history of where we're at. Right. It's only been 50, 60 years where we have actually lived up to the dream. Right. And in, in most aspects, we can argue and debate about, hey, you didn't you, you didn't hear. But people for, fail to realize the power of violence living under the constant threat of violence every single day. I talked to my father-in-law. We were talking about that. I said, hey, man, your generation is about to go out. You're going to be the last generation that lived under an apartheid. Uh, system. Right. And he thought about that. He was like, you're right. And I said, do you ever think about what it was like to live under the constant threat of violence as a young man, that if you think, blink or do something that they perceived as wrong, there is a constant threat of violence. And right. people underestimate the power of that uh, under uh, of an apartheid system. So why is it important for uh, black people to have a connection to America and know our connection and our self-worth is because uh, we can appreciate what was done uh, and what the people before us had have done for, for us to be where we're at. And we see that all Americans have benefited from that, especially white female Americans have benefited mm-hmm. from that. Those are facts. Right. Yep. So simply what that, that's what it is. It will also inform our remedy. So like Governor Westmore was talking about how in uh, in the state that he's governor in, I believe it, I'm, I, I believe it's Maryland, but I have to go back and check. Uh, there's an eight to one wealth gap from uh, mm-hmm. white black Americans, eight to one. And he said that's not because white people work eight times harder than black people. Right. It's Correct. because of 
like redlining where if you lived in a black community you weren't eligible to even uh get a loan from a bank you weren't eligible they they prohibited you from buying land which is where a lot of wealth was created back in those days all of the systemic racism basically forced you into this um underclass like you said apartheid is underclass of folks who were who were uh who were stuck in poverty and so th the fact that we understand that there's an eight to one wealth gap uh, due to systemic racism means that we have to be just as proactive to remedy that, to fix that, and to ensure that black people are able to uh, to obtain some of the wealth that was denied the, to them for uh, generation after generation. Yeah, and I want to address something that is common, uh, common argument that people will use. They will say, well, no, no, no. There were white people who were also uh, uh, redlined into that. And there were black people as well. And they were, the number was far greater. But see, here's the deal, though. Those people had the ability to become white. Most of the majority of the time, the quote unquote white people who were in those black areas that had been redlined were immigrants. And that was used as a motivator to get immigrants and force them to become white. Those are facts, right? So that's the counter argument because I run into a lot of uh, dubious actors in the Republican Party who want to bring that up in that minority, right? Who always want to say, no, 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 they'll quote these facts. No, those, not, the majority of those people were immigrants. Those white people were immigrants in black neighborhoods. And they, that was used as a motivator for them to adopt, to become quote unquote white. That's what mm -hmm. that, that's addressing there. I mean, that, that, that's, that's when people have that argument that, oh, no, it wasn't only black people, right? There were white people involved with that as well. Well, those white people, majority of them were immigrants, and it was seen as a way to force them to become white. So that's the counter argument with that. So when you send me the emails or anything or try to post up on my comments, notice, note, that's what I'm going to give you. And I'm going to give you a lot of hyperlinks that take you to the facts. So think twice before you put that in the comments or send me an email. All right. <laughs> so we got to put that out there. So, so, all right. So I'll, I have a friend of mine who uh, Mike always, Mike always says, okay, Kevin, you're right. All that crap did happen. So what? What are you going to do right now to better your situation? So what's what would be your what would be your response to my? He says it nicer, but he and I have a really good relationship. And he always says that's all true. But what what can we do to better your situation, or for you to better your situation? What would be your response to that? I think for one, definitely, uh, I'm going to try to do some of that with the. Well, I plan to do a lot of that with the National Urban League, getting uh, laws passed that will benefit our people. But also, I think we have to invest in early childhood education in predominantly black communities and make sure that these kids are getting knowledge of self, making sure these kids are getting uh, food, like fresh fruits and vegetables, that they're eating healthy, that they're encouraged to exercise, that they're exposed to more, you know, so they understand that it's more than just, you know, being the next a little baby or being the next Steph Curry, like you could be a, a, a scientist, you could be a, a doctor, you could be a lawyer, you could be an engineer. So just getting there early, you know, and- uh, mm -hmm. and, and that's I, so much more achievable. Every single kid can mm -hmm. achieve exactly those things that you just said. You don't have to be the phenom, you don't have to be uh, a phenom in terms of height or athletic ability in order to have the same uh, success or in order to have great success, you can have that intellectually. Every kid can have that intellectually. Absolutely. It's easier to build up strong children than to repair broken men. And I don't pretend to have all of the answers. That's one of the solutions. But there are a lot of other solutions. And there are people a lot smarter than me who spent a lot more time thinking about these things who can come up with even more solutions. But that's definitely one of them is investing in our youth and uh, at an early age. And I would say the other one to that is for us to is is to know that this isn't the majority of black people. Right. This is this is this is a this is a minority of black people. Now, granted, if you look at uh, disproportionately black people disproportionately are, are tend to be in the underclass. But when I when I see young men like yourself. Right. Uh, first generation. Right. Uh, making and, and, and quote unquote, as my grandmother would say, making something of themselves. Right. And also not forgetting, not forgetting uh, the path that they took and also trying to make sure that they, we, we go in and we create a way for others to come along. Right. That rising tide thing. And people always have friends uh, who always get upset about Clarence Thomas and people coming at him pretty hard. Right. Because Clarence is seen as a brother who who made it 
right? But who didn't do something to bring others along, or at least it's perceived that he's, he didn't do something to bring others along, because that's the important part is that we have to bring those, uh, bring more in, into more people along the path there. Uh, so I, could really, keep you know, the, I think something that, that I've seen like with, with, uh, with, with our people is I'm seeing more people open the door and make sure that that uh, that the next generation doesn't have to start way back at the start line, but yeah. but rather you can make introductions and make sure that a person uh, is starting just like our our white counterparts. Everybody that I know that's my age, their kids they introduce their kids to this person and that person. Now they still have to make make good on that, but you open the doors for them. You don't just get yourself in the door and then slam it shut, mm-hmm. you know, pull up the ladder, batten down all the hatches <laughs> so nobody else can come up. Like, and, and it's sad. I shouldn't be laughing because, I, it, you know, you get to laugh or you cry because I see people doing this all the time. And, and you're just like, do you, like, do you even have a conscience? Do you understand that there's more going on here? Yes, there's what we are dealing with and doing in in our day to day. But then at the same time, you have people that are claiming to be Christian, claiming to be Muslim, claiming to be whatever it is that they whatever uh, higher power that they align with. I align with Christendom. Uh, I don't know how you can claim to love Christ and live like hell like this. The problem, so to speak, that some people who are, and of course, I'm not saying that they're all racist or they're all uh, biggest, but some of them are. And when they saw how successful we were with Black Wall Street in 1919 and a lot of the things we were doing, uh, they felt threatened by that and they burned it down and they shut it down. And so I think that goes to show you that when we get an opportunity, like just if you really, I really do believe that God's hand is on Black people because so many races would not have survived like even the tasmanians the tasmanians they were wiped out they're no longer here and god bless the native americans they're still here but it's just there's a very small number of them the fact that black people are still surviving still thriving still influencing the world and culture and in um and and fashion and sports um and and still like you know we're still growing in number like we're still uh more babies are being born and, you know, people are dying. Uh, Despite us being through one of the most brutal and horrific and demonic uh, slave trades this world has ever known, the the transatlantic slave trade, and then going through a hundred years of apartheid and terrorism, uh, and we're still here. And and as soon as we got an opportunity, we took it and ran. That was the whole thing about... um, Reconstruction, right? Because it's like literally as soon as we got off the plantation, (laughs) the office, we were building hospitals. That's right. Thanks. They were like, yo, these these Negroes right here, so something special about to shut this down immediately. So I think (laughs) (laughs) opportunity. We're not asking for equal results, just equal opportunity. As soon as we get the opportunity, I think the majority of us will take full advantage of it. Exactly. Exactly. If we can't, what else can we say? That's that's a great place to start. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you've been listening to On the Record with Kevin and Tiffany on 930 AM, The Answer, home of conservative talk radio with our special guest, Anthony Collier. You've been enjoying On the Record with Tiffany. We encourage you to share these stories with friends and family. You can listen to other shows by going to 930AMTheAnswer.com and join us next week for On the Record with Tiffany on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.